Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is a chap who's been blogging for quite a while now and may well also be one of the older style bloggers around. Uh, welcome to the podcast, David. Would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Thank you very much, Nick. Yes, well, my name's David Evans, and I have a blog called Grey Fox, which I've curated now for, well, nearly 10 years. It'll be 10 years in December of this year. And yes, I'm 66 years old, so I suppose I may well be one of the older uh, style bloggers around. I don't know. Um, although we do seem to be a slightly increasing breed, particularly among women. There are, there are quite a few older women so sort of bloggers and Instagrammers around now, but um, uh, uh, for members of the the less fair sex, I think there are fewer of us, aren't there, really? I think there's definitely a fewer men who are very visible. Uh, we're a bit more subdued, I think, in our expression, but for the women, it has been very much a, a sort of rejuvenative process of coming out on Instagram, say. Yes, I think that's right. And that's, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that we both started as bloggers in the original sense of the term, um, when a blog was just simply um, a, a written website. Um, certainly when I started nearly 10 years ago, Instagram was there, but it was very much in its infancy. Uh, and I don't think I was really started to be active on Instagram for a couple of years. But Instagram provides us with a very sort of visual medium, which a blog is much less so. And I think that's it's exactly that sort of visual medium which um, women have found um, so useful. Uh, and that's why I think, as you say, there is such an explosion of, of female influences on, on Instagram. Um, but I don't know anybody who started a blog in, in the sense of a written blog recently um everybody's coming on to instagram um and there are uh, there are older men who are appearing on instagram without the sort of the background of a blog aren't there um but somehow men don't seem to be quite so sort of creative um as women are in that visual medium of, of instagram so maybe men do find it a little bit harder I think that's a good observation uh, indeed. I know that I started Instagram as a way of promoting my written blog. Uh, but I think as time goes by, you see that actually making a post on Instagram is less time consuming than researching, writing, photographing for a, a piece on a blog. So the yes. it's much easier to keep up an Instagram. But I think my blog is, I think I might have missed the, the anniversary. It's eight years now. Oh, is it? Gosh. Yes, I remember you weren't long after me, were you, when you started? Because I think we were in touch right at the beginning. Um, but yes, I, I certainly started Instagram, as you did, as sort of promotion for the blog. Um, and to be honest, I sometimes ask myself why I keep the blog going, because most of the effort does have to go into Instagram now. But I, my view about that is that I think it's important to have uh, a, a more verbal medium to keep that going. And I do that firstly because I love the writing. I do enjoy writing. And also because there are some things that people like to read about in a little bit more detail than you can read about on Instagram. 
And although Instagram has always been very visual, in the last few years, it does seem to have become um, more verbal in the sense that people now write slightly more than they used to. But it still doesn't make up for that need to be able to, to write in detail about things from time to time. There is also the problem that once an Instagram post is a few days old, say seven days at the most, yes. it's essentially dead in the water. Absolutely, whilst the yes. blog, I see, I see even articles I wrote years and years ago are still getting lots of hits every yes. day. So it's a question of <laughs> where do you get the value for the time you put into it, really? Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, whether brands who work with influencers look for a blog presence anymore i don't know um they seem to be quite used to this sort of very um ephemeral approach that you get from instagram where things are up for a couple of days and then disappeared um and in a way that's social media has become just something that is ephemeral hasn't it it's uh things appear for a day your instagram story is there for 24 hours and then it's gone um and the problem with that is it it means that it's created a machine that has to be sort of fueled all the time, you know. So every day you're having to put up something um, if you really want to keep ahead. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and that can be a challenge, although, as you mentioned earlier, it is easier to do than um, just putting up a, an image and a few words. That's much easier and less effort to do than putting up maybe even three or four blog posts a, a week because you have to grind out the words. Mm. And the likes quickly dry up if you're not posting anything. So, uh, yeah, as you say, the beast has to be fed. That's very true, yes. And I, I still haven't quite understood. I, I sometimes go back over my Instagram account and, and try to work out which images have, have got the most likes. And I can't see any sort of common elements to these at all, other than that people do like to see you. They like to see full length. If if, if an image has impact, that that's tends to get the most likes but it's very difficult to you know there's no consistency to that so um instagram to me even though i've been on it for quite some time is still a bit of a mystery i think uh, that way lies madness trying to <laughs> second guess what, <laughs> what absolutely yes uh, yes no actually uh, i think you've just got to enjoy it on a day-to-day -day basis and uh, uh, and not worry too deeply about the mechanics of it I think the best way is to not pay any attention to uh, to how many. I, I tend to enjoy uh, comments, but um, I think likes they don't really get noticed. No, you're absolutely right, and and actually it's the it's the interactive side of Instagram which I've enjoyed most, and which I've actively tried to encourage over the last probably eighteen months, two years. So I try to respond to every comment uh, and possibly to get conversations going, and I think that is that is a side of Instagram which is fun um, and it, it, it's something that's missing from from a blog, at least from my blog. Um, I know some blogs tend to sort of act more like fora where you get quite nice conversations going, but um, because of the immediacy of, of Instagram, you're able to do that on a sort of day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and, and people seem to like that as well. They, they, they follow you because they like your style, they like your comments and... Um, Instagram gives us the ability to be able to encourage that by responding to comments in that way.
and allows us to use up all our available available time replying and <laughs> and checking and so it's, forth it's very hard isn't it to uh to prevent yourself becoming totally besotted by it and to be checking your phone every sort of 10 minutes and it's, and it's very important not to do that because um i think as you say that way madness lies mm. yeah i mean we blame the teenagers and say that oh can't you leave the bloody phone <laughs> and there we are exactly, oh. <laughs> exactly. yeah right yeah. Now, we sort of bypassed the whole intro I had planned oh, here, where right. I wanted to delve into who is David in okay. a bit more detail. Right, okay. So, uh, who are you? Um, well, I, I've i sort of had a, a multiplicity of careers, if you like. I, I um, did a law degree many years ago now, uh, and uh, qualified as a solicitor, um, which is one of the sort of two main types of lawyer we have here in the UK. And I practiced as a solicitor in private practice, specializing in sort of health law and clinical malpractice, clinical negligence work for 25, 30 years. Um, and to be frank, never really enjoyed it in the least. Um, I, I suppose I come from that sort of background where, you know, you either become a, you're either going to go into law or medicine. Um, and I probably made the wrong choice by going into law. I would have much preferred to be in medicine. My family is very much medical orientated. I'm married to a medic. My brother's a medic. My father was a medic. Um, anyway, so I, I ended up in law and not really enjoying it. I think the law lacks something which I've now realized as a blogger, I probably lacked for most of my life, and that's just creativity. Um, you're very much constrained by policy and procedure and the law itself in the legal profession. And I never enjoyed that. Anyway, so uh, I then had, this is sort of real life history, really, isn't it? I then had a major cycling accident about nearly 20 year, 18 years ago now, um, which meant I was off work for some considerable time. And this gave me the chance to sort of rethink my future. And I thought, I'm, I'm not going back to do the law. So um, I actually uh, went to a local, what's now a university near here called St. Mary's Twickenham. I think it's the smallest university in the country. And did a PGCE, which is a, a certificate of education. And uh, I, I became a teacher and taught um, for a few years. I taught in a primary school because um, having a law degree I wasn't really in a position to teach secondary where you have to have a degree in your particular subject. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed teaching primary because you teach all the topics, you're, in, you're responsible for a class, uh, and children in primary school tend to still want to learn, uh, which can be a problem in secondary. But uh, I enjoyed that, and, uh, but it was very, very hard work. And from that, I, I moved into tuition. I became a little tutor from home and it's while I was doing that I, I I started the blog I decided I had a book in me um, I wasn't quite sure what the book was going to be about and I thought well I'll write a blog and that will give me a chance to practice to to exercise my my writing muscle um, and it took me some months to decide what I was going to write about I thought about cycling I thought about sailing I thought about all the things that interest me and in the end, somebody said to me, well, write about something that sort of concerns you in your, you know, your day-to-day -day life. And I thought, well, I don't know. 
I'm an older man. I sometimes find it difficult to know whether I should be wearing jeans or wearing T-shirts or, you know, what? Is this too young? Is it too old? Should I have my hair long? Should I have it short? You know, so I thought, well, in a lighthearted sort of way, I'll start to write about that in, in, in a blog. And um, so I started the blog and I called it Grey Fox because one day... Um, the daughter of one of my neighbours called me a silver fox because she thought I looked quite smart. And I thought silver fox was a little bit sort of creepy, so uh, I thought I'd call the blog <laughs> Grey Fox. And um, I honestly didn't intend to do this for more than a few weeks or a few months when I, when I started it because I thought I was bound to come across something more interesting to write about. And... Um, I was lucky because within a few weeks I was picked up by Polly Vernon, who um, is is a journalist who writes for the Times, among other things. And she was doing um, something on sort of smartly dressed older men. And she'd obviously been doing a little bit of Googling and had found a Grey Fox blog. And um, she was wanting to do a piece on well-dressed older men in the sort of true Polly Vernon fashion of, you know, aren't older men sexy sort of thing. Um, but um, we had quite a long chat on the phone. And then one Saturday in the magazine the Times, there was a five-page spread, Are You a Grey Fox? Um, which really, as you can probably imagine, got just made the, the blog sort of take off. And so I thought, well, I can't really give this up now. I must do it a little bit longer. Uh, and the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed it. I started to look at sort of British-made um, menswear, and I found I was meeting some really interesting people and going to some interesting places, factories where stuff was made beautifully around the country. And it, it, you know, here I am, sort of nine and a half years later, uh, and the blog is still going, somewhat to my surprise. Well, I mean, the hardest part of keeping a blog going is finding a topic where you continually get new information and things to write about. And there's so many blogs which start with my fi my favorite fishing rod, say, and you've done the one article you had, and then now, where now? Yes. I, I think I was lucky. I think in some ways I was lucky in having no background in fashion or menswear at all. I mean, I tried to dress reasonably smartly as a lawyer, but I didn't really know much about it. I didn't really know any of the sort of the figures or the brands you know apart from a few obvious ones like paul smith and and so on um and so a lot of the pleasure i've had from doing what i'm doing has been discovering new things and i'm still discovering new things nine and a half years later you know everything from the sort of intricacies of how a bespoke suit is made through to you know how an incredible japanese knitting machine can knit a seamless jumper you know with so many hundreds of stitches per inch and you know it's everything from that sort of degree of technology through to looking at craftsmanship in the most fascinating way and then just meeting people who are creative entrepreneurial and interesting you know, in a way that i tended not to so much as as a lawyer so i think all that's just the ability to be interested in in, in things consistently and still be interested nearly 10, 10 years later has been what's fueled the continuance of the blog. Mm. I suspect that coming from outside the industry also gives a different perspective on the whole thing. 
Mm. We come at it looking at things as, say, art or the beauty in things. Mm. Whereas if you're in the industry, you're so connected to the business of it all that I don't think you have that sense of wonderment. I think that's absolutely right, Nick. And I think another aspect of that is that um, as an outsider, and I still think of myself as, as an outsider, I'm sort of speaking to my audience from their perspective because, of course, they tend to be outsiders as well. Uh, and if you're speaking to an audience as a brand that makes knitwear, trousers or suits or whatever it is, then you're doing so from... A, a, a sort of position of self-interest to some extent and from an in, and from and from a well-informed position as well whereas if if you can speak to your audience as somebody who like them is trying to find out things and to, to to try out styles to try out new brands to see how things are made to find out the history of you know heritage brands then i think you can sort of you know grab your audience interest and I'm lucky enough to, I think, probably be in a position to be able to do that, not having that expertise at any of the things I talk about. Well, I mean, that sense of discovering things all the time is what keeps me going. Yes. There's always something interesting around the corner. There's always something new coming up. If I was sort of basically writing to sell the same brand's wares year in, year out, I, I don't know if I'd enjoy that as much. No. And you have a very obvious sort of style of your own, don't you? And you, you write about a certain style and type of clothing and so on. And um, again, you know, like me, you write about it from that perspective of somebody who's, who's coming into it as an outsider. And I think that just really adds a considerable amount of interest to, to, to what you're showing on Instagram or what you're writing about on the blog. I'm not sure what I'd uh, describe my style as, but I, I tend to call it sort of a hybrid menswear. But <laughs> I notice people often say to me, well, you've got your style, haven't you? But to me, I'm sort of all over the place. Yes. I I, I see your style as, as uh, sorry, I'm being hassled by the dog here. I see your style as being, uh, I don't know how I'd describe it really. It's it's a sort of workwear, workwear sort of heritage um style which you know is 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 very very much current at the moment but at the same time you know i see you wearing a tie i see you wearing suits i see you wearing tweeds so it, it it's more than that but um you, you, i would say you had a a well-defined style nick okay that's good <laughs> i was sitting here thinking until you finished up on that note yeah. i was thinking my oh god i have to have to change things up here now i'm gonna to have to redefine myself well it's very Too hard predictable. It, i mean it, I, i'm often asked you know what do i feel my style is and I, I i don't really like to say well i feel my style is mine um but that's actually what personal style is you know you're you're very rarely going to sort of dress completely like steve mcqueen or completely like Cary Grant um, you know we all dress by taking in inspiration from everything we see from film from advertising from Pinterest from Instagram from other blogs you know just from what we see in the shops and online and we tend to pick things we like and and hopefully develop our own style and that that 
in a way is you know what I feel I'm still trying to do nearly 10 years yeah. after I started the blog I look back at early pictures and I see um, myself looking very different to how I look now and probably I'll look very different again in five or ten years time if if the blog is still going because you're continually looking around uh, absorbing these outside influences deciding what you like uh, and changing your look I think what Instagram has shown me very clearly is that you have a you have a number of tribes who have their their style so if you are a sort of true yes. denim head you are wearing your denims if you're a mod you're wearing the sort of mod uniform yes so there's a lot of these variants i i think that's right and i think um yes and i suppose yes there are probably lots of people who can place themselves into those tribes i personally quite like to sort of take little bits from some of those tribes so during the first lockdown i i became quite interested in denim i bought all sorts of books on denim i, I bought some vintage bits of denim and apart from jeans i've never really worn anything denim before um but i began to see ways that i could incorporate maybe a, a 1970s levi's trucker jacket into a look that is otherwise fairly tailored so you know i might wear some tailored trousers pleated tailored trousers and even a shirt and a tie you know and a jumper with my Levi's trucker jacket over that and it, it, it's a way of being open-minded and absorbing lots of styles and the the interesting and creative part of that is seeing how you can make them all work together and so, sometimes they don't I can assure you of that but <laughs> you know sometimes they do and it's it's just it's just fun trying to make it work isn't it so, so how was this uh, sort of new bad boy style received among your peers? Well, <laughs> yes, as you can imagine, my, I, my, I think like 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 any of us, you know, we tend to have some members of our audience who are fairly vociferous in telling you what they don't like, rather than necessarily telling you what they do like. Um, uh, and there are a few who felt I shouldn't be be wearing denim. And um, one thing I didn't mention earlier was that I have a column in a magazine called The Chap. And the chap is the chap as a magazine is very strongly against um, what they call serge denim, um, <laughs> very very against denim. So I, I feel I'm a bit of an outsider there because I do sort of wear jeans and so on. Um, but I, I think on the whole, you know, people take these things with a fair amount of humour, and and that's what I enjoy about it really. Um, but going back to this thing of sort of mixing styles, I've been. Uh, another a, a brand I've been looking at quite a bit recently, and I, again I bought some books about him. Has been Ralph Lauren, you know, who's been around now for what thirty, forty years, late sixties. Um, I didn't know much about. I've always really admired his stuff from afar, but it's very interesting looking back at some of the ads they've put out over the over the years, over the decades, and seeing how you know he mixes in a very interesting way. You know, he might wear himself or he puts on his models a, a faded denim jacket with, you know, a, a, a Western style sort of Navajo type of um, waistcoat underneath and uh, a cowboy hat and some cowboy boots and some tailored trousers or something. You know, he's really mixing stuff up in a very interesting way. Um, and some of it I don't some of it I don't like some of it I do like. And, it's, you know, it's great that we all like some things and don't like other things, but it's in that sort of process of deciding what we like and don't like that we begin to sort of move towards finding a style of our own, isn't it, I think? 
or really just having fun because yeah. it's the fun side of it Absolutely. that appeals to me. Yeah. Um, wear something different, dress up. I mean, just don't be boring. No, absolutely. And, and that, that's very clear from your Instagram. You know, you, you always seem to be having fun when you're sitting in the middle of your road and on a, on a stool <laughs> and often with the dogs sort of being part of the of the scene as well. Clearly, you haven't got yeah. a very busy road outside your house, Nick, because... Uh, <laughs> just a few few cars every day right, I think. Yes. so uh yeah. i do try to hype up the dangerous <laughs> dangerous aspect of uh yeah of the photos but uh, no it, it's very clear from what you do that you know you're enjoying it and it's fun and i think your audience on it on instagram makes clear whether it likes something or doesn't like something i sometimes feel that you know with just a, a tiny minority there's a slight lack of a sense of humor people don't understand that you know actually you're doing this to, to, to try and discover things, to try out new things, and often very much firmly tongue-in-cheek. And some people just don't seem to have any sense of humour at all. And I think uh, the whole thing about style is that, uh, and particularly maybe British style, I don't know, you know, there is a very humorous element to it, which, uh, you know, looking at sort of mad, loud checks and mixing those up with, you know, check shirts and things like that, you know, in the end, it can become ludicrous, but it does have an element of humour to it, I think. I think many people view these things as lessons. Um, they are so uncertain about how to dress or how they can dress, um, and they're looking for the rules. They're trying to understand. So you'll see people talk about, uh, oh, I found this uh, this blog about how to wear black or how to wear shoes, yes. uh, how to put on your trousers. I mean, pretty basic stuff almost. <laughs> that's what that's what whatever yeah. I think when someone says sort of how to wear a shirt, where yeah. you put your one arm in and then your other arm and then you button it up. But um, and I think you can tell whether people are actually just sort of posting photos of themselves or looking for photos mm. that will guide them. Yes. sort of aid their understanding or whether they're doing it because they enjoy it and it's fun and they don't really care about the rules. Yes. It's interesting. Yes, I think that I, I have noticed that quite a lot. That there does seem to be a proportion of people who seem to be very exercised by rules. Just as an example of, of the sort of comments I get quite frequently, just the other day I, sh I showed myself wearing a, a grey cashmere cardigan and I'd done up all the buttons, and somebody said, "Shouldn't some of the buttons be undone?" And I said, uh, "And I said in the reply, well, you know, I'll do up as many buttons as I want to do up." Uh, and I can understand maybe when it's a proper waistcoat or a vest, as the Americans would call it, that there is a, a a bit of a sort of tradition that's developed that you leave the bottom button undone. And some waistcoats are cut so that it's actually very difficult to do the, the bottom button. And I can sort of understand that if you want to respect that tradition, you can leave the button undone. But there's no rule that says you can't do it up. Uh, and if it, and if in doing it up, it sort of covers the waist of your trousers better or it, it sits better around your tum, then, you know, do it. I, I just think just being too hidebound by rules is it takes away the fun of, of discovery in, in, in personal style. It's like this, uh, you can't wear brown shoes in town. Brown, is that no it? brown in town, that's right. Yes. Uh, and uh, yes, they're very straight. I, mean, I suppose British style in particular has always been very hidebound by rules, and that probably goes back to its sort of military roots 
um, and to the whole sort of social class structure where you know you 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 had to keep your slot in society and this was all supported and backed up by the clothes you wore so you know you had to wear your clothes in a certain way um now it's going to make some point <laughs> it's entirely got out of my mind <laughs> yeah. what i was saying. i think i think the the class point there is yeah. important because you probably did wear uh, black shoes when you were working in the city because you were wearing a dark suit yes. so uh, yes. Someone made it into a rule at some point, but then, and also but, the yeah. the vest waistcoat button is because someone once did undid it while they were riding because it was more comfortable, right. and all the serfs noticed this and made it into a rule. Yes, I think it was George that George one of the George the fourth. Anyway, I don't know, but uh, that there is some story about waistcoat buttons, isn't there? And you can sort of understand the Brown Town rule that. You know, it goes back to the, the days when brown clothing was associated with tweeds and with country, what used to be called sporting wear. And, you know, you didn't want to be wearing your muddy tweeds, which you would use to shoot on your estate at the weekend in your office in the city. So there's sort of some point to that. But I, I've heard of, you know, more recently, there are other rules which seem to have no sense at all. I know until recently anyway, if you were working in an office in the city and you had a pocket on the breast of your shirt, you know, you would get a real ribbing from your from your colleagues. Why? I don't know. You know, who cares if there's a pocket on your shirt? I suppose the trouble with a pocket on your shirt is you tend to put pens in it and then that begins to look really sort of geeky. But uh, I, I think, you know, in general, my observation is that there's just too intense a sort of interest in in rules around style uh, and actually what you should be doing is trying to build up you know your own preferences and to develop your own style um, without necessarily feeling you're having to be bound by rules which you know actually very rarely have any any constructive point to them <laughs> hmm. no, I, uh, I, I tend to take Land's the rules over. as um, yeah uh, as points that can be uh, sort of dismissed, and uh, if you can break them, then then do so. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, uh, yes. I know. I mean, you know, some of them are there, probably. To, some were there because, as I think you were alluding to earlier, people do need guidance, particularly if they're less um, confident about about personal style. So, you know, to look smart in town, you probably used to have to wear, you know, black suits and so on, and anybody wasn't really sure needed a rule that said you can't wear your brown tweeds in your office in the city so you know that's that's for them but uh um and i'm sure you're probably right that yes maybe maybe some rules do have a sort of a value as a as a, as a guide um but I, I think there are more important sort of things to think about in terms of you know sort of fit buying quality you know looking at colour and the interaction of, of, of patterns and so on, which are more useful guides to, to good style than necessarily not wearing brown in town. <laughs> yeah, you touched on something something important there with uh, the buying of the quality things. Yeah. That you don't buy, I mean, avoid poorly made goods, uh, stuff that doesn't fit you, uh, stuff that has poor quality fabrics. Absolutely. I find a lot of opportunity for educating people there. Yes. Uh, and I think that's very important, and particularly as, 
well, you know, we know, and I think one of the issues that sort of has excised me over the last year or 18 months is just the the vast wastefulness of, 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 of the clothing industry, of the fashion industry. And, you know, here are we um, arguably encouraging people to, to buy more um, in their search for style. And, you know, I, I do care about climate change. I care about the environment. And I, I sort of wonder how I can square those concerns with, with you know, what would appear to be my role as somebody who's <laughs> encouraging, you know, uncontrolled consumption. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the way of squaring that concern is that um, actually you and I both talk a lot about um, quality. Uh, and I think, you know, the ideal wardrobe would be a small, high quality wardrobe where everything can be worn with everything else. Um, everything is going to last for years. Um, but it's very difficult to, to to square that with with the fact that um, brands need to be profitable. They need to make money. Um, so, you know, it, it's not an easy problem to overcome, I don't think. Um, but I, I think both of us talk about very small brands who who can be sustainable in, a, in, in an honest way. Um, but uh, for the, for the older brands on the high st for the larger brands on the high street, I think it's very difficult for them to be um, honest in claiming to be sustainable. Oh, definitely. And while they would like to make me responsible for their future profits, mm. I, that's a responsibility I refuse to take. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a fact of life that most of these large brands, if they were to become sustainable, if they truly meant that, they'd close up shop tomorrow because the low-cost, quick-turnover business model can't become sustainable. I mean, they might talk a lot about circular economy mm. and all this, but you know as long as their super-rich owners and uh, shareholders want their profits, mm. it's just not going to happen. No. But a smaller company will be more involved in the production process, the buying of the fabrics, mm. and can take a whole different outlook on that. Now, I'm not going to say that by buying quality goods from small companies, you're going to save the planet because that's also a bit tricky. Right. Uh, once you get a taste for the good stuff, you want to keep going back. Right. Yes. <laughs> and if you're buying the same amount of stuff as before, but more expensive, well, we're back to zero. Quite. Yes, I, th I think that's absolutely right. Um... Sorry, I, I just I had a thought that occurred to me, and again, it's just flown <laughs> gone in one ear and out of the other one. <laughs> Sorry, um, I went off on a rant. No, no, there. no, no, no. You're you're absolutely <laughs> right to do that, and it was a point I was going to make that that arose from that. I'm sure it'll come back to me in a minute. Um, but I think that um, th th this whole issue of sort of buying less and buying better uh, is something we we just sort of have to do, really. I, I, but what does concern me are the claims by some brands that they are green, they are sustainable, which are, are just plain nonsense. I was just reading about a brand um, in the Times yesterday um, who have developed a line of, uh, I think, polo shirts or something, which they're very proud of because what they do is they recycle the polo shirts which have gone into the shops earlier not sold and have been sort of remade into new polo shirts and i just thought 
how on earth is that sustainable? You know, it suggests that in the first place, they're making too many polo shirts. They're pouring these things into the shops. They're not selling. So they're flying them back out to wherever in Asia and having them all pulped and, you know, remade into new polo shirts. How is that sustainable? And to claim that it is so is just nonsense. Um, just... It is very easy today to claim that you are sustainable. Yeah, uh, right. It was a while back now I was going to do something about sustainability. I thought, well, I'll, I'll check what uh, sustainability is defined as on Wikipedia these days. Yeah. And it was just page upon oh, no. page about all sorts of things. And I'm thinking, that wasn't in the original definition. No. So no, I remember I remember what you once wrote something, didn't you, which pointed out very, very acutely the sort of difficulties of, 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 of defining sustainable and uh, of actually being sustainable in, in a... And I think the only way you can be sustainable is just to buy a lot less, buy what you really need. And the other thing, of course, is buying vintage as well, um, which is something I've, I've become increasingly interested in over the last year, I think. But yes, the difficulty defining and being are, sustainable is, is acute. Vintage is interesting because when, when we hear about the massive amounts of clothes that are discarded... Quite. Uh, a lot of it ending up in landfills mm. and or being incinerated or being made into insulation mats for cars or whatever. Mm. Um, I mean, clearly, we are throwing away about as much men, as many clothes as we are using, mm. and it is a huge problem. Uh, the problem with vintage, I find, is that old vintage is better quality, mm. but a lot of the stuff which is sold as vintage now or tried to mm. be sold, I mean, it can be stuff that went out of the shops last right. week uh, vintage is such a sort of fluid yes. <laughs> description i think by definition it should be 20 years old but a lot of it isn't yeah. and also it's a lot of the sort of crumbly made stuff that we didn't want in the first place mm. so you're finding stuff from the sort of fast fashion brands being sold on as vintage and it's it's even worse than it was to start with but mm. i it's a shame if we've thrown away all the really good old vintage stuff from decades mm. ago. Stuff that was made with proper fabrics and made in a proper way. And that would be what we'd be wanting to find. Yes. And, and if we all wanted to dress as street urchins from the 1930s. <laughs> quite. Which is another problem of vintage. Well, Yes, exactly. I mean, it's thrown out because it looks terribly old fashioned. Uh, or it's got moth holes and things, but um, and and there are brands that are trying to sort of remake these things, repurpose them, recut them. Um, but of course, you know that's that's something that's it's expensive to do. So, um, sort of repurposed vintage is no, is not going to be something that's ever going to be cheap. But it, it it's likely to be good quality, provided the moth holes have been sort of sewn up and the uh, uh, and the original cloth is is good quality. Um, and the other problem is, of course, the cost that you know, it's never, never going to be in huge supply. And you, you, know, you might you you might see a suit you really really like, a tweed suit, say that is thirty forty years old, but you know it's sort of ten sizes too large, and you know that's the only one. They're not going to have any more. Um, so that's another slight problem with vintage. But you know at least it's an attempt to to recycle stuff, to reuse stuff that. Uh, uh, and it's and, and it is i suppose it's heartening to see some brands begin to recognize that and some brands will uh, on the high street have you know corners of the shop where they're selling their own stuff that's vintage um 
And maybe that's something that could be encouraged because it enables them to continue mm. to be profitable, but to you know turn over a proportion of their floor space to stuff that's been made before rather than churning out new stuff and flying mm. it across the world and then putting it straight into landfill. I always find myself a bit confused when I see initiatives like that because on the one hand, I'm mm. thinking, wow, that's such a cute idea. That's great. And then I'm sort of thinking... Now, why did they do that? Is that mm. just greenwashing? Is that just to sort of take my attention away from other aspects here? It's like when you go into one of these fast fashion places and they've got this sort of carton by the door mm. saying, you can uh, you can throw away your old unwanted garments here. Mm. Uh, they may or may not give you store credit for what you throw away, but you sort of sense, if you're thinking logically about it, they're doing that so you're going to feel good coming into the shop mm. and buying some more stuff. And this level of trickery really frustrates me. Yeah, I know. I, yes, I mean, you feel some of them are being very cynical about it, I'm sure. Um, in the end, it's it's in the end, the brands aren't going to sort themselves out. It's up to us as consumers to uh, to make sure that change happens. Um, and yeah, we, we might see the sort of change that is coming about with, you know, far bigger businesses, oil businesses and so on, where where um, investors are beginning to see the value in putting money into um, sustainable technologies, into, into, into sustainable businesses, um, because that is, after all, the future. Um, and, it, you know, if you're a business that is, say, developing new batteries for cars or something, um, you can attract, um, hopefully, uh, lots of investment because... You know, in ten years' time, you could be one of the biggest countries in the, one of the biggest companies in the world. You know, because there'll be such a need for your products. Um, and and if 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 the fashion business could could find some similar way of making itself have to be sustainable in that way, then that might be a way forward. Mm. I think part of the solution there is to get away from the whole concept of fashion. Yep. which I think is really a creation to keep replacing what we have all the time. Yep. So if everyone could just agree with us that wearing a three-piece tweed suit and some proper shoes mm. every day for the next 15 years mm. is good, then we'd get somewhere. Yeah. And that, that's something that's probably easier to do with menswear than with, with women's wear. I mean, you, you look back 50, 60, 70 years and you see men wearing suits that you could wear on the high street now um provides you've sewn up the moth holes um but you know the, the basic shapes and the structure of, of men's wear doesn't change hugely over time whereas with women's wear it, it does tend to a lot more so that probably means there's a lot sort of greater wastage in in the system um but yes yeah, so you, you maybe you could at least start with men's wear and and, and mm. encourage men to build up a quality small wardrobe of stuff that they really like that really fits them well that they love wearing and you know you can swap them swap it around and okay you might have to buy the odd shirt the odd tie the odd bit of knitwear but you know all that if, if you really love something if it really fits you well and it feels beautiful then you you don't feel the need to go down the high street every saturday and buy something new because you know, you've got something that really feels and looks nice on you. You you enjoy it, um, and it sort of becomes part of you. So you just don't need to go and buy cheap stuff every weekend down the high street. That's how I remember it was when I was a teenager. Yeah, 
when if I was going out, I put my jacket on. That was the jacket I had. <laughs> yes, yeah. And when winter came, I had another jacket. Yeah, yeah quite. Yeah. But, yeah. but interestingly, what you say about menswear and men perhaps being um, easier to persuade to have a smaller wardrobe, I quite often get asked about recommendations for companies that make menswear mm. for women, i.e. clothes that will fit women, but with the same sort of aesthetics, uh, quality, and so forth yes. as menswear. Yeah. But not many do that. Uh, and the people asking want to get away from the sort of frilly, frumpy mm. um, synthetics, which are typically sold for as women's clothing yeah, these days. Yeah. There are more and more sort of bespoke tailors around Savile Row, aren't there, who are catering specifically to women, or at least, you know, to, to both. Um, but off the peg clothing, I suppose there is this move towards genderless clothes. Um, but I'm not sure they're necessarily always the answer because whether you like it or not, women are different shapes to men. And, um, you know, something that is a pair of trousers that's cut for a woman are, might well bulge in the wrong places for a man. Um, so, yes, I suppose the move to sort of looser fits, um, might make it easier for you to find clothes that are well made from some of these smaller firms that you know fit either a man or a woman um, do you have any particular brands in mind nick well before i mention any i'm going to have to give you a little <laughs> bit of pushback right, there okay. david Push because back. i think i think if you're sort of walking around savile row wondering if anyone can make you clothes <laughs> your problem isn't in finding off the peg uh, clothes no, no no quite no i know i realize I, I knew as soon as i started with savile row that uh you know, that wasn't that was only going to be the answer for maybe one in a hundred people. Uh, now, regarding brands that yes. sort of make menswear for women, uh, the only one that comes to mind, and he's going to be on the podcast okay. uh, any day now, right. might even have been by the time this one comes out, is is Lane Forty Five in oh, London. Okay, he may yeah. he cuts his styles differently for men and women, right. but it's basically the same garment. Which oh, and okay. it, since it's all made to me it's made to measurements, right. then it's also um, uh, arguably sustainable in that uh, there's no wastage. Yeah, there's a little brand I came across the other day called A State of Nature, who are a small brands in seen them, yeah. East London, I think, and they everything everything they make is for both men and women. Uh, mm. And in fact, I'm I'm waiting to receive a pair of trousers fairly soon, so it will be interesting to see how they fit me um but they're sort of very high-waisted pleated and then sort of you know taper down to 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 the ankle so um my, my concern you know would be about those is that they sort of will make me look as if i've got a woman's hips but you know maybe in some way they can cut the trousers so they don't do that and it may be just something we we sort of need to get used to and if clothes are are made well or are made of materials that sort of mold themselves around you then then those differences in shape needn't be as acute as as you you might have thought they would be i, th I think it's a fact of life that men and women generally have different shapes so yeah. i think if you're making just one style to fit both it's going to be a case of one style fits none yeah. but We'll see how it works out. And one of the functions now, of clothing is meant to be that it is often for certain sorts of clothing is that it is that it's sexy, um, and a woman might feel that something that is akin to a sack 
isn't necessarily sexy. So, uh, and maybe the same for a man as well. You know, he wants to sort of show off his broad shoulders and his flat stomach and his small derriere. You know, if he's wearing something that's huge and bulbous, it's not necessarily going to do that. So maybe sort of for one, for day-to-day -day sort of workwear, it's something that can work. But I'm just not so sure otherwise for sort of more tailored type of stuff. I know that everyone listening to this now <laughs> wants me to ask this follow-up question. Is dressing sexy a big deal for you, David? <laughs> um, is dressing sexy a big deal for me? Do you know, I'm not even sure I know how to dress sexy, to be quite honest. And I, 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 I suppose, you know, what is interesting and I, is that um, a, a sort of consistent bit of feedback I seem to get on from the female element of my audience is how much they love to see men in suits. So, you know, to, I, I, I can't quite understand why a man in a suit is particularly sexy, but, you know, for a woman, apparently a man in a suit is sexy. So, you know, maybe just, uh, maybe it's after a year of lockdown, you know, seeing men uh, on Zoom calls, just wearing sort of, you know, <laughs> sportswear. Uh, means that they're absolutely desperate to see us wearing something that's nicely tailored and, you know, shows off the male silhouette a little bit better. Could well be. <laughs> I mean, people have things for men in uniforms Quite. or some people like these Fifty Shades of Grey books or absolutely, whatever. So yes. I think suits it, are a power yeah. thing. There is that power thing, isn't there, to the, to the men's suits? And... Uh, uh, which sort of leads us, you know, potentially, if you wanted to talk about so the whole future of the shoot, suit thing, isn't it? Because uh, there's a lot of discussion about what we're going to be wearing post-COVID and um, whether the suit will survive. And uh, that's a, an issue we'd be very interesting to talk about sometime. You may not want to talk about it now, Nick. You know, I think that pretty much everything in the world is going to snap right back as soon as the pandemic is over. And uh, yeah. I have very little doubt about that. There's so much talk now about the massive changes in what we do and how we think and not traveling and not uh, doing this and that. I think the moment people are vaccinated, it's going down. People are going to be flying away. They're going to be back in the office wearing their suits yeah. and whatnot. And um, I'd like to see more change than I think will genuinely happen, but I don't think no, so. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, 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 you know, in, in relation to men... I'd like to see them being slightly more adventurous in what they're wearing as well. I was walking the dog in the park this morning and having a rant on my Instagram stories because eight out of ten people were wearing black um, down-filled jackets and coats. And it, it was a total, totally monochromatic scene. You know, the, the dogs had more variety of colour than the people in the park this morning. And there was I in my sort of nice tweed coat and a coloured scarf and I, I just stood out and I felt that was that that was a shame really you know we, we shouldn't be all having to dress in in what is after all a uniform and a rather monochromatic uniform so it'd be nice to feel that you I, know we, after, after lockdown we, we could be a little bit more adventurous with colour and pattern and so on. I did actually catch that uh, angry <laughs> older man in uh, in colourful outfit, shaking his fist. And uh... <laughs> well, my yep. apologies for that, but you know, at my age, I'm entitled to the odd grumble. Well, I think that's part of it, isn't it? Uh, sort of old old men yeah. putting the world to rights. You know, it goes back to this whole thing um, about you know, this is all fun and we're enjoying ourselves, we're having a giggle, so I can have a grumble and pretend I'm doing it, you know, humorously when actually I'm really serious about it. 
I mean, for all we know, there were many people live Instagramming all around you about this bloody clown <laughs> prancing about the park with his dog. Right, exactly. Yeah, who does he think he is? Yeah. yeah. Last of the summer wine, eh? Every time I appear in a corduroy suit or a corduroy jacket, I get some comments about, are you a geography teacher? Uh, and then somebody even said to me the other day something about it, it made me look old or something. Uh, wearing a, I think I was wearing a tweed jacket and a fair isle jumper underneath. So I pointed out, well, I am 66, so you know I am oldish anyway. So I sort of feel entitled to wear stuff that <laughs> that is worn by an older person. Anyway, I think that must be entirely psychological from the person commenting there that someone they knew who seemed incredibly old at the time <laughs> used to wear clothes like that. Personally, corduroy jackets, uh, brown ones. Yes. Can't get no, I know. I, I noticed that, Nick, on your on your Instagram. <laughs> but it is interesting how people seem to feel that, you know, because you're there on Instagram, you're sort of, you know, they can, they can make the most sort of personal comments. I don't mind it because, you know, it's it's it, I think it's absolutely right. You know, if you're setting yourself up as being on a on a sort of style journey, then, you know, it's nice to hear people's views on on what you're wearing, even if you don't particularly like those views. <laughs> Yeah, I don't often get comments like that. Um, very, very rarely mm. get I get snarky comments. Oh, I get them rarely. No, and that, and rarely. that's yeah. quite fine, really, because I'm not really fishing for comments no. regarding my outfit, whether rate my fit bros no. <laughs> and then getting loads of comments about, wow, bro, you look hot. No, or, <laughs> I know, I know. I just find that a bit embarrassing. Yes, I do as um, well, yes. If there's anything too embarrassing, I tend to uh, just delete it, to be quite honest. But no, I, I, you know, I cannot, I can probably remember sort of one or two unpleasant comments in the 10 years I've been on Instagram. Um, it, it's a lot more pleasant uh, an arena than, than Twitter, say. Yeah. My wife will often remind me, um, we visited Manchester many a year ago, and... I made some comment about the the sort of menswear, the cool menswear shop in Manchester about how poor their staff was, uh, which enraged a certain section of Manchester menswear enthusiasts. Oh and someone described me as the Alan Partridge of menswear. <laughs> That's wounding. That's my, wounding. My wife keeps reminding me several times a year. The Alan Partridge <laughs> of menswear. <laughs> Oh dear. Apparently it was very spot on, but oh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. ah. That's Manchester. Right, yes. There you go. Um I did want to swerve by another of your big um causes. Okay. Made in made in the UK. Yeah. What is the state of the UK manufacturing industry? <sighs> that is a difficult one. Yeah. When I started the blog, um I felt that the whole thing was sort of picking up after you know decades of 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 hardship really i mean as a, as a child i mean i'd lived in manchester interestingly enough and i can remember all around there there were mills that were busy you know weaving cotton and, and making clothing in particular and then of course that all went downhill throughout the later years of the 20th century as um as as manufacturers, you know, including some of the big British names like Burberry, etc., you know, took their manufacturing abroad. And when I started the blog, sort of nearly ten years ago, I felt that that was beginning to change, but without 
any sort of knowledge of figures or, or anything of that sort. Just my impression is that it's sort of plateauing. I, I, I don't think there's necessarily any less manufacturing now than there was 10 years ago. But I, I think at that stage, I was thinking, well, maybe we're, we're beginning to see a huge sort of burgeoning of, of, of home manufacturing. And I'm not sure that's necessarily happened. That there are there are lots of businesses there that are making all sorts of stuff from shoes to clothes and weaving cottons and wools and so on. But uh, whether there are any more necessarily than there were ten years ago, I I sort of doubt. Mm, I have a suspicion that it sort of went down to a certain Possibly. level, and then kept ticking over yeah. and sort of surviving, maybe increasing a bit, but. I don't think many new factories have been no. started up. There's no. English fine cottons in Manchester, yes. of course, who are sort of bringing cotton back. Yes. I don't know how big they really are. No. And there were attempts to start sort of tailoring suits on a, on, a, on a massive scale in Cheshire, weren't there, I think, and, and that didn't really come to anything. So, I, And I think, um, you know, most brands are still sort of using places like Portugal and Mauritius and so on for, you know, reasonable quality tailoring um and shirts and shoes and, and so on so i i I, I suspect the short answer is it, it needs the investment uh and if there's one thing that the british government has never shown much enthusiasm about it's it's in the british fashion industry as far as i can make out and i think that's um that's a shame you know the whole the whole issue of brexit um involved a lot of discussion about the fishing industry for example which became a huge sort of issue. And the fishing industry is a tiny proportion of the size of the fashion industry in this country. And the fashion industry now is struggling because of uh, Brexit. Um, and I, I, I think until these issues are recognized and, and, and dealt with, we probably are not going to see ourselves becoming a, the sort of um, huge manufacturer that we were in from, from early Victorian days right through to the middle of the last century. I think uh, a big part of this is also that it's been so long time now since there were a lot of jobs in that industry right. that there's no more skilled people around. Mm. Uh, I visited a factory in Lancashire last okay. year and it was mainly Eastern yeah. Europeans working yeah. there because they could get the jobs and they had the mm. skills. And, and British people probably didn't particularly want to work there. And, 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 you know, we're now faced with the, the issue of, again, arising from Brexit, that um, uh, it's going to be harder for um, companies like that to, to employ people from Eastern Europe. Um, so, you know, where you find the manpower to sort of make clothes or pick carrots or whatever it is, I don't know. You know, that, that is something that's, in, in a way, some of these issues have, have been um, hidden by all the problems that have, you know, had over the last year around COVID, uh, and I think the government, for the British government, has found it very easy to sort of hide behind COVID and in, in in not dealing adequately with all the issues that Brexit has sadly raised. So mm. let's just hope that, that that will, you know, as COVID fades away from from view, um, they will begin to get to issue it, get to grips with those issues. Mm. It's sort of issues upon issues upon Quite. issues. And of course, exactly. the, the garment industry was broken 20, 30, 40 years yes. ago. But how important do you think it is for a British heritage brand, 
a brand thought of around the world as truly British to actually still be making their garments in the UK? If you'd asked me that five years ago, I would have said that it's important they do make in the UK. I'm just not so sure about that anymore, Nick. But I think, you know, much more important issue is that they are honest about where stuff is made. And that is something that has been lacking in the past. You know, we've had brands um, who have that British heritage and have done well out of that British heritage, who've taken their manufacturing abroad. Uh, some of them have bought some of it back. Uh, most of them still do a lot of their manufacturing abroad, but you know they somehow fudge the issue about whether something is made in this country or made abroad. And uh, I think that really undermines the value that there is in, in, in the Bish made label because you, know, you ask any brand or any shop and they get, surprisingly, they get people coming in saying, you know, where's this stuff made? Is it made in Britain? So, you know, it has a huge value having something that's made in Britain, but you've got to be honest about where those things are made. I really like the way that some, uh, for example, Loke, the, the shoe brand, they actually have a factory in, in India, um, but they are totally honest about, you know, which of their lines are made in Britain and which are made in India and which of their shoes are made in Portugal. Um, you know, the sort of non-Goodyear welted stuff is made in Portugal, for example. But, you know, at least they're honest and open about it. And that is really needed, I, I think. I, I, I was just looking the other day at my Hunter Wellies and, you know, I, I assume that Hunter being one of these heritage British firms, their wellies are probably, thank you, made in made in this country but I, I couldn't see any made in anywhere label on the wellies which made me think they're probably made in china or something and i think that's a shame you know i think if if if, if you're if you're if you're building on a heritage then you need to at least be honest if you're not still making here you say look you know we'd love to it's designed here or something but sadly for economic reasons we have to make it in china well just be be honest about it mm. That's a good start, at least. Hunter Wellies used to be made outside Glasgow, I think, uh, where they make Macintosh yes. and uh, Hancock Hancock's, stuff yes. now, I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one of my pet peeves is uh, is Barber. Yeah. Because they make three models in the factory in South Shields. And for me, a Barber made in South Shields is genuine. Yes. And those models will have made in England on them. Uh, the ones, the 150 other styles yeah. they make, it doesn't mostly doesn't say where they're no. made. Uh, and they should, so I, I agree with you, yes, they should be totally honest about that. And, um, you know, it may mean that you sort of have a luxury range, which is made in Britain, and you can be totally, you know, you can talk about the heritage, you can talk about the story, you can show pictures of, you know, gnarled hands sewing the waxed cotton or whatever it is and and, and you charge more for it because you know it's it's a quality product mm. made in a heritage way in a british factory but you know don't fudge what's made here and what's not mm. it's interesting that you brought the quality point up there yeah. because i'm not sure that <laughs> i know what you're going to say making in britain is no. necessarily higher quality or premium or luxury i think the one made in lithuania could be made much yep. better but I mean, yeah, sort of intangible yeah, it's, thing. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, probably uh, it is. It is very different. I mean, if if you go to say, some years ago, I went to the Margaret Howell factory where they make shirts up in up in North London, and each shirt is made by one person, and the love and the attention that goes into it, the sort of number of stitches, you know, it, it, they're probably making a better product than is made on a sort of a mass 
basis in Portugal, a Portugal factory. But, you know, a Portugal shirt is probably just as good and may not last quite as long and may not be made of such nice cotton. Um, but, yes, you know, in that case, you could say that made in Britain is, is, a, is a quality premium. But quite often the premium is just in the heritage and the story and the history that's behind something. And I think that's it's that that makes sort of British products so popular in places like Japan, you know, it, where they're sort mm. of, they are concerned about quality, but in a way they're also almost sort of more interested in the name. And if it has a heritage to it, they, they sort of assume there's a quality behind it. And um, it's up to brands to maintain that quality. But, but to be honest about where it's made, I think. Mm. There's a certain British uh, boot maker in Stony Middleton, and I'm sort of they. I, I often come back to them because they've been sort of family owned and running in the same factory for 130 years, William Lennon yes. boots. And I find myself wanting a pair of their boots because they're made there using the original equipment yes. by the same family owned company, not because their boots are the best in the world. Mm. They're not really because they're the same, basically the same boots they've been making for 130 years. <laughs> they're kind of clunky, yeah, quite, heavy, yes. but all that history makes them just super desirable yeah. anyway. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, probably you know that that clunky approach to manufacture might make them more durable. I mean, you can imagine finding sort of in a in a, in, a, in an outhouse somewhere a hundred year old pair of you know boots made by that factory, and they'd probably be sort of still wearable and. Um, in a way that often, you know, modern manufacturing methods are, are designed to give something in a built-in obsolescence, aren't they? It's that your shoes fall apart after five years and you have to buy a new pair. Um, mm. <coughs> so I think that's where that heritage side of it does 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 add to the value. But the whole thing is is very complicated. I agree. Um, the thing about Lennon boots is that they're made by humans. Yeah. And I've seen, when I visited the factory, I saw some specimens that were sent in for rebuild. Okay. So they're built by humans, so they can be rebuilt. And some of the ones they got in, I mean, they were trashed. Yeah. They were awful. But they'd resold them, put them together, yeah. good as new. Yep. And then they'd be out for another five yeah. years of hard use. Yes. I, I, I think... Yes. So so the Bish made thing is difficult, isn't it? I, in fact, I've been sort of thinking about it quite a bit recently because um, it, you know, we, I know you're based in Norway, but it, the, the the sort of British, the British contribution towards menswear shapes and styles and colours is absolutely huge. And I've been trying to think about why that is. And, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for that. You know, we were first into the Industrial Revolution and so we're the first to start making cloths and clothes and shoes and things on sort of mass production basis. And plus the whole sort of basis of menswear, the shapes and so on, probably came from sort of military styles and, 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 and very formal styles that, you know, were very much part of British sort of tailoring. Um, and uh, so I've been thinking quite a, a lot about that recently, and I, I, th I think that heritage part of it does add a value, but you know you do have to support that with with, with well-made products that um, aren't going to fall apart, or else you sort of undermine that whole story, and it, it becomes valueless. Speaking of well-made products, David, <laughs> you're quite the proponent of the bespoke. Yeah. 
Now, I have to admit that I don't really own a suit as such, but the idea of having a bespoke suit, a suit made that would fit my sort of odd middle-aged body <laughs> perfectly, not like the horror show I got married in many, many decades ago. <laughs> um, can you talk a bit about the bespoke experience? Yes. I mean, I, I, I'm very lucky to have, I suppose, three bespoke pieces. I've got a couple of suits from, from Dijon Skinner and um, a tweed Norfolk jacket that was made for me uh, by Bitter Hirsch. And I, I have to say, I mean, I've been quite lucky in that over the years I've been able to compare off the peg, made to measure and bespoke. And there is absolutely no doubt in my mind, at least from my experience, that bespoke gives you a far better product than than even the best made to measure. Um, you know, the process that you go through, there's lots of fittings, lots of tweakings. The, the bespoke construction process sort of builds in um, curves and uh, sort of freedom of movement and uh, that, that just seems to give... Um, bespoke jackets in particular sexiness i was sort of trying to interject an element of sexiness totally that's that's all i'm interested <laughs> in it's just the sexiness <laughs> now, i mean past that is probably it isn't it because you know what you want to do is you want to look as good as possible and the great thing about um uh, english tailoring is that uh you know with a, a sort of tweak here and a tweak there and a bit of stuffing here and a bit of stuffing there you know you can have one shoulder higher than the other and that can be evened out and you can be made to look like a real hulk with wide shoulders and flat stomach and so it is quite incredible what they can do but um more important for me really was just the feel you know as soon as i put on one of those bespoke jackets it just feels as if it's sort of molded to almost fe it doesn't feel tight but it feels as if it's sort of, you know, it's a bit like putting on some sort of um, Superman suit or something. You know, it sort of clamps around, you know, and in a very technical way. And, and uh, But you can move freely and it, and it looks good as well. It looks sexy as well as feeling good. So it's sort of worth it, I think. Would you consider them to be sort of sustainable uh, in that they would last a long time? Or does that depend on how your diet goes? <laughs> Well, of course, they do build a certain amount of latitude into 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 these things, you know. Uh, and I'm, I think uh, they're quite used to to people's suits lasting long enough that they have to come back in five or ten years' time and have little sort of tweaks done to uh, uh, take account of expanding waistlines and things. Um, so, you know, again, that's something you couldn't do with 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 a, a, an off the peg or even a made to measure suit. And, and we're probably all used to seeing pictures of uh, um, uh, the Prince of Wales, you know, Prince Charles, uh, wearing suits which he had made from years ago, and which had been patched, and sh bespoke shoes which he had made from years ago, uh, uh, and had been sort of patched and resold and so on. And, and I think the thing about them is that the basic structure of, of, of the garment is, is, is strong, and, and usually it's made of the best materials. So... You know, it's not going to fall apart at the seams and so on. And if the materials do wear through at the bottom or the elbow or something, you, you've got the skilled workmen and workwomen who can who can patch them almost invisibly. So I, I think, you know, there, there is a there is an argument to be made for sustainability. You could you could almost buy an off the peg suit annually or you know once every two years for ten years and spend nearly a thousand pounds. And okay, you know, 
a bespoke suit would probably cost you considerably more than that. But just the pleasure of owning something that's different, that fits so well, that looks so good and, and feels so great, sort of makes it worthwhile. And you can make savings by having something that lasts a long time as well, potentially. <laughs> Could we maybe say that the death of the British tailoring industry is one of the greatest losses of the British garment industry? <sighs> It used yeah. to used to be there were tailors Absolutely, everywhere that yeah. could actually make bespoke suits, yeah. but there's not many left no. now. I think um, uh, it's yes, and even I can remember when you know almost every town had a tailor, and you know I remember my father having suits made and so on, and um, uh, you know there's a tailor just around the down the road here which who disappeared a, a few years ago. Um, and of course, even the working man had had suits made from from him and he for him, and he would he would go to the factory and and work in them. And I suppose it was only in the middle of the last century that uh, off the peg suits started to become a big thing with Montague Burtons and so on. Um, so I think that is a loss. Whether you know what's interesting is that over lockdown, you know, I've, I've sort of slightly despaired about the future of the tailing industry, but they seem to be hanging on in there. Um, and I really hope that they do because there are a lot of young people that have gone into it, a lot of young women in particular, who've gone into tailoring and learned the skills. Um, and you know, it's not just the sort of the front of the house people, the people who own the business and the cutters who talk to you and measure you. There are behind the scenes, lots of, you know, really quite young people who are making coats, making waistcoats, making trousers. Um, it's not all. It's not all sort of dusty old folk you know in attics in soho who are who are uh, stitching away at these things that there is a real sort of young thriving enthusiasm about getting involved in tailoring and i really hope that um the the sort of the the, the much talked about death of tailoring isn't going to come about for their for, for their sakes really mm. i suspect that the fact that they're actually attracting younger people to work there is a good sign for the industry yeah. yes um it, it's then a question i think of trying to persuade more people to spend you know what can be a lot of money on a bespoke suit you know, in Savile Row, you're talking about four and a half five thousand pounds for a bespoke suit um and it's persuading enough people to, to to feel that that is a reasonable purchase and i think more and more people probably are beginning to think in terms of smaller and higher quality uh, and the savings that potentially that can be made that way but not everybody does so and of course not everybody can afford that anyway so um it's never going to be the answer for everybody but then you know nothing ever is you know there are cars of all prices to suit all pockets and so it would be the same with fashion with 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 menswear I suspect it's the segment that also don't balk at playing paying 10 20 thousand pounds for a watch no won't mind buying a suit no. that is sort of similarly priced as well. I, I think that's probably right, yes. Yeah. So it's a case of the industry finding enough of that type of customer to survive. But I think if they wanted to expand, it would you'd need the tailor on the corner to open up again and offer suits for, say, half the price. Yes. Um, whether you'd ever have the skills in enough volume to enable them to be opening up on on street corners anymore i don't know and i suspect the market's never going to be big enough to allow that to happen 
Um, mm. I mean, having said that, the, I mean, just at the end of my road here, I've got a, a you know, a, a dry cleaner. Uh, and I think I think he's from Syria or somewhere like that, and where he was a qualified tailor, and he has done the most amazing things for me. He's um, uh, sort of shortened sleeves by take, unpicking them at the uh, at the collar here and then shortening them there. In a way, I just can't see the work being done. You know, so there are the, the, the maybe mm. sort of you know immigrant skills that have come in who could who who you know you may find if you go to your local. Uh, small sort of off license, um, not off license, laundrette sort of tailor. You you, you have got the <laughs> skills there. You can go to your off license as well. You know when you're up there. But uh. Uh, actually, uh, shortening sleeves by doing it at the shoulder is uh, is a nicer, much nicer way of having them shortened because you don't sort of mess up the exactly. cuffs. But it is exactly. a lot of work, as I discovered when I did it on one of my. You jackets. did it yourself. Uh, now, now you're impressing me, Nick. It must be very hard to do. Oh, you know. When you don't have anyone around to do it, you have to do things, learn things oh, yourself. Um, now, I was going to um, to make a sort of swerve into an entirely different field. Uh, I can't recall how, quite how I was going to do it elegantly. Now, I <laughs> had it do ten it minutes ago. Nick, I can forgive you. Um, British brands, heritage yeah. brands, old cars. Yeah. <laughs> now we both all have green ancient yes. cars. Yeah. Yes, I, I. Is that another sort of area of interest? Uh, it, it is. Yes, I've got a 1967 Land Rover Series 2A, um, and, and and sadly that's a bit of a sore point for me at the moment because the engine, <laughs> the engine, well, it didn't blow up, but I discovered the engine had cracks in both the head, uh, and and the block. Um, so at the moment I'm having a new engine built for me at the moment. Um, it's, it's, it's a station wagon. It's a sort of green. So it, it's you know, if you think of a Land Rover, if you if you get a child to draw a car, they will draw my series two A Land Rover. You know, it's the, it's the sort of the typical old sort of Land Rover, decades before it became the Defender. Um, and it's it's I, I think what's I like about it is that you really have to work at it to drive it. You need sort of biceps of steel. Uh, and a left leg of steel, you know, for just sort of depressing the clutch. You have to anticipate what's going to happen sort of 100 metres ahead because braking is, well, iffy to say the least. But somehow this all adds a real sort of pleasure to the driving sort of process that uh, you just don't get in, get in a modern car, which is a bit like driving a, a you, know, you know an armchair along where almost everything's done for you. Um, so I absolutely love it. You know, it, it, it's great, and I'll be glad when it's back on the road. Um, but it sort of it goes with my um, love of, of British-made stuff and sort of the heritage stuff as well. And it goes with the tweeds, and it goes with the Labrador and the Hunter Wellies and stuff. So it's it's perfect, Nick. Do you get the sort of country vet feeling? <laughs> All, all creatures great and small yes yes <laughs> yes and what's great is i know at the end of the journey i'll be in the pub rather than with my arm up a cow's somewhere i wasn't going to mention that but <laughs> thank you for going there <laughs> yeah. okay david i see we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes now so i think we're going to oh, um, bring it to a close flies. yes in closing is there anything you'd like to mention any upcoming plans any interesting projects, um, thoughts? Uh, 
I, 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 yes, I, I'm sort of, I, I think I mentioned that I'm looking at this whole um, business of the influence that sort of British menswear has had on, on the world's taste and shapes in menswear. Um, and, and that's quite an interesting exercise I'm looking at at the moment, um, which will probably result in at least um, a column in the chat magazine and possibly something in on my blog as well. But um, it's interesting that, that, that just digging around how little there is um, that's been written on a topic, because I think probably most people would recognize that sort of British con and particularly English contribution to men's style. Um, uh, and yet it's been something that's sort of not really been commented on, which I, I find interesting. But it may be that you as a Norwegian see things in a completely different way, Nick, or at least somebody in Norway. It may be that you wouldn't agree with the, the contention that uh, the, the Brits had, had much of an influence on the shapes of menswear. Oh, I think they certainly did. Certainly. Uh, I wouldn't... Uh even try to attempt an argument Good. that the Norwegians <laughs> had any sort of influence. So uh, you've got me uh, there. <laughs> no, I, I just I thought it was something quite interesting to look at. And um, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I, I got a I'm looking quite a bit. I've got a couple of books on Ralph Lauren as well. And it's quite interesting how, um, you know, he was obviously very inspired by the sort of the Tweedier country house aspects of, 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 of British style. Um, and as I was saying earlier, he's sort of interwoven it with very traditional sort of American um, styles around denim and you know, Native American cloths and that sort of thing. And I, I, <clears throat> so I, I just thought I, I'm sort of my, my thoughts are still half formed about this, but I do want to look at um, how um, Bishish style has really sort of influenced menswear generally worldwide and then at how that in is has in its turn been influenced by external influences from you know other countries from the states from uh asia and in india and so on all these have had sort of an input so you know what we wear is is really a product of of many many influences from all around us um and i just think that could be quite interesting little exercise just to, just to look at that and, and learn something from well, you were wondering earlier where your book would come from. Exactly. Exactly. Well, it quite, yes. I mean, that that's the same thought that occurred to me, Nick. So you know, it may well be that that, that that is what it's going to be. It, 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 if I do that, it will be my, my second thoughts about having a book. I was thinking about one a few years ago, and uh, um, it, it, it didn't come to anything, although I did uh, have... I was approached by a, a publisher's agent, but um, I probably didn't take full advantage of that opportunity. Um, but, you know, maybe, mm. I don't know. Anyway, if, if, if there's a publisher out listening to this out there who might be interested in chatting about a book that is absolutely fascinating on a topic which has been under-discussed, then uh, please get in touch. Okay, David, good luck with uh, the big project. And, um, Thank you. If anyone wants to follow you, where do they find you? Well, uh, my blog is at www.greyfoxblog.com and uh, I'm on Instagram at at greyfoxblog. And it'd be lovely to see people there uh, and have a chat on, on the comments section. Where they can criticise your outfits. My buttoning up of waistcoats and things, yes. Please feel free.
brilliant. <laughs> okay, David, thanks for being a wonderful guest. Thank you very much, Nick. Good to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. And that concludes this week's episode of Gomology. Thank you to David Evans, aka greyfoxblog.com and greyfoxblog on Instagram for being a great guest. If you enjoyed this, you'll probably enjoy my blog as well at weldrestad.com. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I'm predictably weldrestad there as well. I'm even doing some uh, YouTube videos now, fun with outerwear. You can find them on the blog. New episode next week. If you'd like to get in touch, the email address is gomology at weldrestad.com. And uh, thanks for now. Bye-bye. <laughs>